The following was taken from the PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals website, particularly in their section for kids, which is known as PETAKids.com. And as I read this, I want you to keep in mind the old adage of the Jesuits that said, give us a child until they're seven, and you can have them back, but we'll own them forever. Listen carefully to this uh, very short article. This is from PETA, not me. (laughs) Just like most of you and most of your parents, a lot of us grew up eating meat, wearing leather, and going to circuses and zoos. Many of us bought our beloved pets at a pet shop. We wore wool, ate a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and maybe even fished. We never thought about what happened to the animals involved. But then one day, we started to ask ourselves the same question you might be asking yourselves right now. Why should animals have rights? People like us who support animal rights believe that animals matter as individuals and are not ours to use for any reason. I I remind you, this is being spoken to children. And are not ours to use for any reason, not for food, clothing, experimentation, or entertainment. Animals have their own value regardless of whether or not they're cute, useful to humans, or an endangered species. Everyone matters, from the tiniest ant to the largest elephant. All animals have the ability to suffer in the same way and to the same degree as human beings, and every creature has a right to live free from pain and suffering. Think about it. You don't like to be hit or kicked or teased or tormented, and neither do animals. And you wouldn't want to be torn away from your family and given to a bunch of strangers who may or may not take good care of you, right? Well, the puppies and kittens who are taken away from their mothers and then are sold by breeders and pet stores don't want to be taken away from their families either. Animals feel pain, pleasure, fear, frustration, loneliness, and love just like you. Mother animals miss their babies terribly when they're taken away from their parents. Cows are very protective and loving mothers have been known to walk for miles to look for a lost calf. They even take turns babysitting for each other. And did you know that hens and chicks talk to each other while the chicks are still inside the eggs? Whenever we do anything that interferes with the animal's needs, the animal's best interest should be considered. For instance, you wouldn't keep your dog chained up in the yard because the best place for your dog is in your home with you. Animal rights is both a philosophy, they write, or a belief, and a social movement that makes people rethink society's outdated view that other animals on this planet exist only for human use. Elephants aren't here so that circuses can chain them, beat them, and drag them around the country, forcing them to perform silly tricks that they'd never normally do. We've come a long way in the fight for animal rights, and even though every day brings a new victory for animals, there's still a lot of work to be done, and that's where you come in. You have the power to help animals every day, from making sure that your animal companions are well taken care of and being lavished with love and attention, to helping animals living in factory farms by going vegetarian. There's always a way you can get active for our animal friends. To find out what you can do, they say, you go to this particular website. Before I go any further with our discussion this morning, let me acknowledge, let me first acknowledge that all civilized people are in favor of treating animals ethically. All civilized people are in favor of treating animals ethically. And it's my abuse, it's my understanding here, that that there is a law in place in every state that prevents the abuse of animals. At least that's my understanding. But the philosophy of PETA certainly goes beyond restricting what the majority would consider abuse and it's taken this discussion to a new level. But 
What about some of their questions that they raise in this article? What about the concept of animal rights? Is it valid to refer, as they do in this article, to an animal as an individual? Is it abuse? Is it animal abuse to wear wool? Are those who buy a pet from a breeder or a pet store exercising cruelty? When we meet, are we accomplices in mass murder? And did Colonel Sanders belong in jail? Um, now, why we might, uh, we might be inclined to dismiss some of these questions as insane and irrelevant. There are a lot of people that take them very seriously. In fact, there used to be a billboard out here on Interstate 45 South coming into downtown where you make the curve, and it read, Jesus was a vegetarian. Well, I found that very interesting. So I went to their website, and I was interested to know how one would validate such a claim, Jesus being Jewish, <laughs> and celebrating the Passover. There's a lamb involved in the Passover. And there are also accounts of him catching fish and helping other people to catch fish and eating fish. There's one account of that, too. I wondered, I wondered how they did it. Well, my conclusion after reading the article was their, their exegetical skills are just maybe a, a, more than a tweak or two away from being uh, competent. Uh, they weren't, weren't quite that good. Does the Bible help us with a question of how animals are to be treated? Well, yes, it does. But more importantly than that, it will, and we're going to talk about that this morning, but even more importantly than that, it helps us to understand the place of humanity on this earth and the value of human life, the value of human life. All life, listen so carefully please, all life has value, whether plant or animal, whether human or animal. But not all life has equal value. Only one aspect of God's creation is said to be created in the image of God. And that aspect is His humanity. This theological truth has profound implications for the manner in which we live our lives. I'd invite you to turn to the very first chapter of Genesis. We've studied this for several weeks now, and we'll be in it for quite some time. But I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, as we pick up where we left off last week. And I'll read from 26 to the end of the chapter in verse 31. This, of course, is going to be the climax of God's creative activity, the creation of the man and the woman. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. In verse 31. And God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. 
In chapter 1, we have observed up to this point several divisions or distinctions taking place in these first six days of creation. We saw light distinguished from darkness. There was a separation there. We saw the waters below separated from the waters above. The land was separated from the seas. The sea creatures were made distinct from the creatures that occupy the air. And the land creatures are distinct from the air and the sea creatures. And then finally, today, we see that there is a distinction or a division made between the animals that occupy the land and human beings. Verses 26 and 27 introduce an important theological question and a significant applicational issue. The theological question. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And the applicational issue, based upon that, what responsibility do human beings bear in light of our unique position in God's creation? So what does it mean, and what responsibility do we have in light of the fact that we have been created in the, in, in the image of God? What responsibility do we have? First of all, in verse 26, Then God said, Let, man, let us make man in our image. This introduces the climax of God's creative activity. The plurals, us and our, have led many to see the initial revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity here. The verb, by the way, is in the singular. These plurals do not refer explicitly to the triunity of the Godhead, but do allow for that doctrine's future development during the process of progressive revelation. So in and of itself, we can't say the Trinity is found here. But it certainly introduces the concept, and the, the doctrine of the Trinity will be revealed more thoroughly and more completely as God's progressive revelation unfolds. Particularly in the New Testament, it reaches its height of revelation. Now, some would say that the, the plurals our and we don't refer to God. The, the pearls, our and we, refer to God and the angels. So God is saying, with, along with angelic creation, let us, meaning us and the angels, create man in our image. Um, that is a possibility, but that view, in my opinion, is strictly the result of an over-imaginative uh, over idea in your soul uh, combined with a desire to deny any possibility whatsoever of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Um, there's no biblical support for that view. There's no biblical support for angels having anything to do with the creation of human beings, uh, none whatsoever. So I'll move on from that view. But uh, this verse at least introduces the idea of the Trinity, but I wouldn't use this verse to prove the Trinity. There are other ways to do it uh, much more effectively. The terms image and likeness in this passage are essentially synonymous there have been those that have attempted to draw distinctions between them, but those attempts seem to always fall short. So as I refer to this concept theologically this morning, I will use the word image of God, but I'm using that as a synonym for image and likeness both. Up until the 20th century, most theologians held what was called a resemblance view of the image of God in man, meaning that in some respect, in some respect, Man resembles God, hence the, the title resemblance view. It doesn't mean that man has become God. When we say we're created in the image of God, it doesn't mean that God has created another God or, or even created little gods like, like some other folks may hold. But 
but rather that man resembles God. Anything that's created can't be God. God, by definition, is uncreated. Now, most, not all, but most would reject the idea that that resemblance includes a body. Now, there are some that don't reject that, but since God is spirit, the majority of theologians, systematic theologians that are conservative would reject that, although not all do. The Protestant reformers regarded the image of God in man as referring to man's immaterial nature as fashioned for rational, moral, and spiritual fellowship with God. Calvin, John Calvin, the reformer, taught that the image of God in man includes, and I quote him here, all the excellence in which the nature of man surpasses all the other species of animals. I'm going to read that again because I think it's significant to our discussion this morning. Calvin says, the image of God in man includes all the excellence in which the nature of man surpasses all the other species of animals. According to the resemblance view, man has intellect, emotion, and will. All the elements of what we might call personality. In addition, man has the ability to reason and the capacity to make moral decisions. So we would say that man is not merely conscious, but man is also self-conscious. Now God, too, possesses these qualities. God thinks, God feels, God acts. And we readily acknowledge that while God thinks, feels, and acts with perfection, our thinking, our actions, our emotions, our choices, far too often fall way short of perfection. So I would deny a one-to-one correspondence, for example, between the emotion that God possesses and the emotion that we possess. We can't read our faulty emotion back into God's emotion. For example, uh, I love, uh, and so do you. We, we have an object for our love, and sometimes our love is worth, worthwhile. Sometimes our love is good. Sometimes our love is consistent. Sometimes our love is objective, but not always. You can test yourself on that. There are times when we say we love a person, and then scarcely 30 minutes later to 45 minutes later, we're having really bad thoughts about that same person. So our love is not consistent. Now, it is still love. So while there's not a one-to-one correspondence between my love and God's love, there is some correspondence. You see, God's love is perfect. God's love is eternal. God's love is consistent. God's love is objective. And He's going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's always going to be, it's always going to be this, this status of perfection. Now, my love is not the same as God's love in that sense. I don't have the perfect love that He has. So there's not a one-to-one correspondence between the, the elements of personality in God and the elements of personality in man. We're not saying that. It's a mistake. And we certainly don't want to read faulty human emotion back into God. And say, God's love must be my, like my love. That's not what we're saying at all. But we are saying there's at least an analogy there. So we would say there's an analogous uh, relationship between the love of man and the love of God. So God thinks, God feels, and God acts. So we, we possess these same things as well. Now, the fall, which we'll study in Genesis chapter 3, severely challenged this image of God in mankind. Some people would say that the image of God in mankind was completely done away with at the fall. Now, I wouldn't hold that because the Bible doesn't explain it that way. So we would say that the image of God in man after the fall was effaced but not erased. In other words, it was damaged but it wasn't completely destroyed. Think about the conversation 
We haven't studied it yet in this study, but you've certainly studied it before. Think about the conversation that takes place between Adam and Eve and God right after the fall. Although Adam and Eve run and God seeks them. That'll be an important part of our study that day. God goes after them. They don't go after God. God goes after them. But they still converse. They still can think. They still make choices there. So, the image of God in man has been effaced. It's been severely damaged, to be sure. But it has not been erased. Human beings, human beings then have spiritual life, ethical and moral sensitivities, conscience, and the capacity to represent God. That was the predominant view in Christianity up until the 20th century when theologians began to embrace what they called a functional view of the image of God in man. This focuses on what people do, not so much on what they are. Proponents of this particular view hold that the image of God in man is primarily concerned with man's delegated dominion over all the earth. So you have these two competing views in theological circles, a resemblance view, which talks about the which relates the idea that in some way man resembles God, and there's differences about what way that is, but in some way man resembles God. At the very core, we'd say, at least with intellect, emotion, and will, intellect, emotion, and will. And then there's this other view, the functional view, which is a more popular view among many systematic theologians today that would hold that this idea is simply related to man's delegated dominion over the earth. But if you think about it, perhaps you're doing it right now, these two views are not mutually exclusive. Ordinarily, I don't give you several different views, but you may be wondering why in the world is he doing it today. The reason I'm doing it today is because both of them have validity. Now, this is not so much a case of one of those cases of either or. They aren't mutually exclusive. The image of God in man surely includes both resemblance and function. Charles Ryrie recognized this when he wrote, The image of God in man includes, first, the dominion which God, the supreme sovereign, delegated to man. Second, intelligence, for one of Adam's first acts was to name the animals. And third, life itself, Ryrie wrote, in all of its creative potential. So, when we speak of the image of God in man, we're going to speak of both a resemblance relationship and a functional relationship. In other words, what is the job he's given us to do, which is part of our applicational principle for today? Now we find in verse 27 that this image extends to both male and female. Did you hear that one? To both male and female. It wasn't just Adam that was created in the image of God. God created Eve in the image of God as well. All human beings, all human beings, regardless of gender or race for that matter, have been created in the image of God and therefore have equal value before Him. I want to say that once again because that's the crux of the message today. All human beings, regardless of gender or race or any other factor, have been created in the image of God and therefore have equal value before Him. The doctrine of the image of God in man has profound implications then for how we live. In light of that, what responsibility do human beings bear because we've been created in the image of God? Well, for example, later in the ninth chapter of Genesis, we will see that the fact that all men have been created in God's image forms the basis for the institution of capital punishment. 
This, of course, is a hotly debated topic in our culture and, frankly, in topics in, in cultures around the world. I was speaking with our friend George Mueller. As he was my interpreter. Many of you know him. Most of you know him. He's our missionary to Cameroon and to Germany and, and to Eastern Europe. But George and I went on a speaking tour throughout Germany on one occasion, and we came to a very beautiful town called Dortmund. I love that town. It reminded me a lot of, of Portland, Oregon. It was the summertime over here. It was nice and cool over there. I really was having a good time. And it was a relatively small church, so we went in and we spoke, and, and uh, it was, it was kind of nice. They, they even took up a little love offering for us, which I thought was, was kind of sweet of them to do. And then it came to the question and answer session. And uh, those of you who know George know that George is very German. <laughs> and there was a question that came from a lady in the back. And he, she, she did it in German, of course. And, and uh, George never turned to me and told me what the question was. He just started going right back at her in German. I mean, and she's going at him in German. And he, he's going right back at her in German. And I, said, I leaned over and said, George, please, George, please let me, why don't you tell me what the question was. And, and I'd like to participate, you know, because he was asking me the question. <laughs> And he never did. I never knew what the question was until we had left. Um, without getting the love offering that was, <laughs> that was given to us. <laughs> I already had that spent. I asked him in the car going back. I said, what in the world was that all about? And he said, well, we won't be being invited back there. I said, well, I can tell that. <laughs> I sure see that. I like that church. I'm, I'm really disappointed we're not going to get invited back. Because everybody was nice. Except for that one, one, one lady in the back. And, and her problem was, it had nothing to do with anything about which I was speaking. My sermon was on Psalm 73, about, about righteous people suffering. It, it wasn't, it, but, but her question was about capital punishment. It was at the time where, where now President Bush was Governor Bush, and there was somebody that was going to be executed. I forgot his name here in Texas, and it became a worldwide thing. And she was just going at me because I was from Texas. She just wanted to know how in the world could a Christian hold to capital punishment. Well, if he would have translated it for me. We, we could have gone to Genesis 9 and we could have answered it rationally and, and I still would have gotten that love offering. And <laughs> I, I, I was joking about that, of course. But it is a hotly debated topic in our culture today among Christians and non-Christians. But that's where, we, that's where we get the basis for the idea of capital punishment is because there's a certain value that every human life has. Every single human life. The person is sitting in front of you and behind you to your right and to your left, you need to realize, as you're, as you're looking at them right now, the back of their head perhaps, or, or maybe you're touching their hand right now, they have equal value before God. And that has profound implications on how I view my neighbor, on how I view my fellow church member, on how I view the fellow that cuts me off in traffic. That person, too, was created in the image of God. We've studied James recently, and we saw that we have a responsibility to avoid harsh and damaging words spoken to one another because the person that you speak those words to, just like you, have been created in the likeness of God. A synonym for what we find here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. As I look upon my fellow human being, I should remember that either he or she has just as much value before God as I do, and Christ died for them as well to make them savable just like he did for you. And just like he did for me. And, and that God loves that person every bit as much as he does me. You see, we get wrapped up in our own self-consciousness sometimes. And we live in our own world. There's people all around us talking to us, eating with us, fellowshipping with us. But there's this sense in which we get wrapped up in our own self-consciousness. Then we start to think that somehow 
My relationship with God is more important to God than his relationship with someone else. Not true. And if we could ever grasp this principle, I'm going to treat you better. And you're going to treat me better. You're going to treat your spouse better. You'll treat your children better. You'll treat your neighbors better. And guess what? You might even treat that fellow better that cuts you off on the freeway. Maybe not. But you might. You ought to. Because they're created in the image of God just like you. I love, I love the way the New Testament speaks of the relationship between husbands and wives. Speaking to husbands about the wives and says, listen, you need to treat her well because she, like you, was one for whom Christ also died. Doesn't that just kind of stick you sometimes? You know, you can't really get, and you can apply that to anyone. That person that you're irritated with right now, the person that you brought that irritation into church with you, God sent Christ to die for them, just like he sent him to die for you, which means that he loves them every bit as much as he loves you. That's one of the profound implications for living from the concept that we have been created in God's image. Now, there is no logical basis for the concept of the dignity of man in atheism. Some atheists may live their lives in such a way as to though they want to demonstrate and act as though they believe that, the man, that man has dignity. But there's no logical way to get from atheism to the dignity of man. It's an interesting observation that I have made. Perhaps you've made this as well. Is that many who may be atheistic and will protest with with vigor, with enthusiasm, with intensity. They will protest the eating of meat, the slaughter of animals. They will they will throw fake blood or real blood on celebrities that are walking by on red carpets that have any kind of fur on them. You've seen that happen. They'll throw it on them. But these same people have no problem whatsoever with the abortion of thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of human fetuses every year. They have no problem with that. That's inconsistent thinking. The the idea of the dignity of man is a Christian concept. It's a Judeo-Christian concept. It comes from the Word of God, and it it starts right here. God said, let us make man in our image, and let them rule over the fish of the sea. It doesn't say let him abuse fish. And it doesn't say we ought to dump all our toxic waste into the sea. Well, that's stupid. I want to breathe clean air just like you do. I want to drink clean water just like you do. But there's a certain dominion that we have. And with dominion comes responsibility. And by the way, Jesus ate meat, in case you didn't get my joke a minute ago. He ate fish. And you're not sinning when you go to Kentucky Fried Chicken unless you've got some sort of cholesterol problem or something. Maybe I, don't know. I like Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'll admit it. You probably tell. I like Kentucky Fried Chicken. Original recipe. Not that crispy. If you're going to get crispy, you can go somewhere else. But original recipe. When we... When we... Here's to the New Testament, guys. When we consider our position as stewards... When we consider our position as stewards of God's creation, we should adopt a responsible strategy of balance between our desire to look after God's creation and the needs of other human beings. We we just need to have a balance there. We should not be abusive to animals. People who who abuse animals are lowlifes. You see them on television. They They do deserve whatever the law of the land will give them. 
nobody, and don't walk out of here today thinking that I was advocating the abuse of animals. Far from it. We have, we have dominion over those animals. Now, granted, in the fall, we lost, a, we lost an aspect of that dominion, but there's still a sense in which we do have dominion over the earth. There's a sense in which we do. So it, the fact that we have dominion over something doesn't mean that you have the responsibility to trash it. It doesn't mean that at all. You own your home, or maybe you rent your home, but you're paying for it each, each week, each month. It doesn't, you, who, who today is going to go home and say, listen, I own that property. Give me that garbage. What? Give me that garbage. And, and just spray your garbage all over the front yard. Who, who's going to take their front yard and say, give me that gasoline. I'm going to pour some of this gasoline in the front yard. I own it. What do you mean? I own it. I can do what I want to with it. We would consider that silly and not even worthy of discussion, would we? Francis Schaeffer brought this up back in the 70s. We have dominion, we have responsibility, but that responsibility has got to be exercised in a balanced way. If it comes down to an owl having to move its breeding habitat another hundred miles down the road, or a bunch of human families starving, I'm sorry, the owl's got to move. And that's a serious issue. In some parts of the country, it's a very serious issue. So there's got to be a balance. We have responsibility. We have to exercise that responsibility in a good way. But that's not the only application. Of course, we see that here. God blesses them. Be fruitful and multiply. But he gave them dominion. He he told them to rule, to subdue it. Adam later is going to name the animals, which which emphasizes the, the rulership aspect. He'll name them. But that doesn't mean we abuse them. Don't, don't come to me and, and, and abuse an animal and say you did it because you have dominion over that animal. Don't do that. It's not right. But also, don't come to me and tell me I'm sinning by eating a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Unless you're my mom or my wife. You can do that then. <laughs> but the rest of you can't do it. Now, that's not where this passage ends, though. There, there's a couple more important points as we close, and then we'll, uh, we're going to have our ordination service. God bless them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, that's something we hadn't really done a lot lately, but, but that's what we were supposed to do. And that also indicated, by the way, that the potential was there for Adam and Eve to procreate before the fall. Some people take a view that that potential didn't exist until after the fall. Well, the command was before, so we have to assume that if they gave them a command, that they had some sort of ability to fulfill that command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you see those distinctions that were made from before? The same distinctions. There's a distinction between the fish, between the birds of the air, and between the animals that move on the earth. And now there's a huge distinction between all of that and human beings. Do you see the distinctions that have been made here? Verse 29, I've, I've given you all these things, the seeds... That, have, that are on the surface of the earth. Every tree which has fruit-yielding seed, it shall be for you. And then on, in verse 30, it seems to say the same thing for animals. This is, what, this is the passage that has, has led many to believe that before the fall, it's, it's probable that Adam and Eve were vegetarians. Uh, as we get to the fall in a few weeks, you're going to see that it doesn't necessarily mean there was a long time between creation and the fall, but, but at least he, he says that the, the plant kingdom was there for you to eat. Some people would use that as a is validation for Christians having to be vegetarian. The problem with that is there's a lot of future revelation 
you know, particularly the Mosaic Law, where, where uh, animals were given to us to eat. So no, you're not sinning in that sense. But then verse 31, the climax of this passage, I don't want you to miss the beauty of it as we close. God saw all that he had made, and behold, or you might even say, watch, we'll look at this, it's very good. Now before, certain aspects of God's creation had been completed, remember what he said? He said it was good, tov. But here he says it's tov me'ot. It's very good. It's exceedingly good. Um, creation wasn't pronounced exceedingly good or very good until man and woman were created in God's image. Again, we have these distinctions. I said before, all life has value, but there's a certain special value to human life. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. So I hope you've taken from our time together this morning the significance of the fact that we're, we're the only ones that were created in the image of God. That's high responsibility. And so therefore, since we've been given the responsibility to, to, to take care of this earth, we should take care of it as best as we can with a responsible balance between the needs of human beings and our, and our uh, responsibility to take care of that which we have been given. We're stewards of this earth. Just like you're stewards of what God has given to you with regard to financial resources, with regard to your health, with regard to your ability to think, you're stewards of that. You have to use it wisely. Uh, corporately, we're stewards of the entire earth. But, but even more importantly than that, for daily living, we should never forget that every fellow human being you run into, I don't care what their skin color is, I don't care what their gender is, and listen, I don't care what their intellectual ability is. They all have equal value before God. I, I had this driven home to me more often than I would like to remember as a boy. My younger, youngest sister, Cindy. Many of you have met her. I think Cindy's about to be 50, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Cindy was born mentally handicapped, uh, severely mentally handicapped. And uh, it's, it's obvious if you see Cindy, she's got a great beauty to her, but that beauty is internal. You can, you can obviously tell that she's had, um, that, that, uh, that there are issues there with regard to her mental capabilities. She's as sweet as the day is long. Just, just a wonderful person, but, but there were more than a few times growing up, as a boy, we'd be walking through a store and uh, people would make fun of her. That uh, didn't sit well with me as a boy. It hurt me really badly. It, it was a source of anger to me at other times. I remember the last time that this happened that I can remember. Uh, we, we were in New Orleans there for a football game, and while we were walking down from the Bourbon Street area back to where we had parked, and, and there were a group of people who were just, uh, just lowlifes. They, too, were created in the image of God, but they were lowlifes. And uh, adults gathered around the car and, and began to, to poke fun at her because she was mentally handicapped. Listen, she's created in the image of God and has dignity and has value just like any other person that's on this planet. And we need to remember that in the days to come. Those who are born down children, those who are born handicapped, those who may not have a limb, they, they all have equal value before God. And we ought not to forget that. That was a you may wonder what happened. Dad insisted we get in the car and go. Otherwise, there would have been arrests made that night. That, that was just horrible. It was just stunningly horrible. So we need, to be, we need to be very careful when we look at our spouses this evening, when we look at our friends, 
and they, they may do something that just didn't sit perfectly with us. We need to remember that, that they, are, they have self-consciousness just like you do. They're thinking thoughts now just like you are. God loves them just like he loves you, and, he, and Christ died for them just like he died for you. You know, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, I want you to know that God does love you. And sometimes people say, well, how could he love me based upon what I did? He loves you because you've been created in his image. He loves you deeply. He loved you deeply enough that he realized that even though we have all failed and fallen short of the glory of God, everyone has, there's really no need to dwell on that once we understand that principle. But God loved you in spite of that, and he sent his son to die as a substitute for you. He made it very clear, very simple. Scriptures say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Did you hear that? Whosoever. Don't care what you've done. So people come and say, Bruce, I've done this. I say, I don't care. Because Christ's death paid for that. Well, I've done this. He paid for that one. Well, I've been involved in drugs and alcohol. He paid for that one. I murdered someone. He paid for that one. He paid for every sin you've ever committed. And there's one human responsibility he gives us, and that's to place our faith in him. To, faith, to place our trust in him. And you can do that just in the privacy of your own thoughts, in your own soul. When a Philippian jailer one time asked the apostle Paul, this Philippian jailer, by the way, had abused the apostle and threw him in jail, incarcerated him. But there's some circumstances that happen, and finally this jailer realizes what's going on, and he comes back and says, what do I need to do? Me personally, what do I need to do to be saved? Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. You see, right now you're trusting in something to get you to heaven. Nobody wants to go to hell, or, or else you're trusting in the fact that there may not be a heaven or a hell. Now, that's nothing to trust in either, I wouldn't think. But some will say, well, I'm just going to be good enough. I want to be good enough. Oh, my friends, you can't be good enough. No one has ever lived that could be good enough. There's only one person that's lived a perfectly righteous life, and that's the one that died for you. So if you've, if you've come this morning and you've never personally done this, I don't, not, not your family. You say, well, my, my parents took me to church when I was a kid. I don't, that's irrelevant to me. Did you trust Christ? Now, if you did, then you're going to heaven. If you haven't yet, I'd invite you to do it now, even while I'm speaking. You can form the thoughts in your own soul. You know, Father, I know I have a need. And I know only Jesus can meet that need. I'm, I'm placing my trust in him. I know I can't be good enough. I place my trust in him right now. Right now. And if you've done that in your own thoughts, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, the one who was resurrected three days later, we don't worship a dead prophet but a risen Savior. Jesus lives so you can too. And do it now. You may not get another chance. This may be it for you. Do it now. Again, in summary, all life has value, whether plant or animal, whether animal or human. But not all life has equal value. Only one aspect of God's creation is said to be created in the image of God, and that is humanity, and that carries with it serious responsibilities. 